Acts 18, verses 1 through 18. These are God's words. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who'd recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him, and blasphemed. He shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Eustace, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by vision. Do not be afraid, but speak. And do not keep silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. So Paul still remained a good while. Amen. Thus ends this read of God's inspired and inerrant word. We rejoice to know that he blesses especially the preaching of it. Please be seated. Well, this would have been a good passage for a New Year's sermon. Uh, It is a passage uh, about God taking his servant uh, who uh, was in sort of a waiting mode uh, and stirring him back up uh, to zeal and then sustaining him uh, in an enduring, persevering uh, ministry. Uh, But as even in Last week's pastoral letter, we uh, we 
wrote or read. Uh, and as we all feel, uh, we are in need of much better than New Year's resolutions. And our merciful God uh, gives us new morning uh, resolutions. Uh, his mercies are new every morning and he calls us to worship uh, morning and evening. He had that instituted even before the first Sabbath day. Uh, and then he gives us new weeks resolutions. Uh, but I suspect that you and I, uh, particularly uh, we who are in Christ, are continuously grieving over the coldness of our hearts and the dullness and the sluggishness of our uh, service unto him uh, and uh, desiring that uh, we would be stirred up to zeal. Uh, and so this is a uh, an example of how the Lord not only stirred his servant up to zeal, uh, but sustained him uh, in a persevering and enduring ministry uh, for quite some time. And this passage gives at least three ways uh, in which he did so for Paul. Uh, it really gives uh, about uh, at least 15 ways, but if you're a preacher, you can cheat by putting 11 of them under one head. Uh, and we have summarized it and we'll think about it in this way. First, how God roused his servant's spirit, how he stirred up his spirit. Uh, second, how he reinforced his servant's doctrine. Uh, this, of course, is how Christians operate. They're not feeling-based people. Uh, they are transformed by the renewing of their mind. Uh, their offering their bodies to God as living sacrifices comes by the view of God's mercies. Uh, and the apostle who was carried to say that by the Holy Spirit had just finished uh, an 11-chapter tour de force of theology, uh, not feelingsism. Uh, and so in the second place, he does not just rouse his servant's spirit, but he reinforces his servant's doctrine. Uh, and in the third place, one of the things uh, that he had reinforced in his servant's doctrine, uh, and then he makes his servants to experience, is God restrained his servant's enemies. Uh, so rousing his spirit, reinforcing his doctrine, restraining his enemies. Paul was in, in waiting mode. He was actually in waiting mode before he got to Corinth. He was in waiting mode in Athens. And this isn't the first time that the Lord has stirred up his spirit. You remember that when he was in Athens and he was just going to be waiting for Silas and, uh, and Timothy, uh, he was provoked in his spirit when he saw the idolatry uh, of the place. Uh, an idolatry that he had experienced uh, even when he was going to synagogue. Uh, and uh, uh, and idolatry, and that's what the Judaistic God is. Uh, God who is just one, but not three. God uh, who is claimed uh, to, to be Father uh, without the knowledge of the Son, as Jesus had interaction uh, with those who were denying him even in his own life. Uh, but he was provoked by the idolatry in the synagogue and outside of the synagogue. Uh, and so he uh, reasoned 
in the synagogue in Athens. And then when synagogue let out, he went to the marketplace and he evangelized there. And eventually he got taken to the Areopagus uh, and he pro- preached Christ there. And then he was laughed off the stage uh, when he got to the part uh, about the resurrection. And that brings us uh, into uh, verse 1. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he's still, in, uh, in some, to some extent, in waiting mode. There is a, uh, a progression uh, in, from verse 4 to verse 5 uh, that is demonstrated in the language. And he reasoned in the synagogue. And the word there is, as we said last week, uh, in the similar context in Athens, uh, the word from which we get the word for dialoguing. And it wasn't going badly. He was actually persuading both Jews uh, and Greeks in the synagogue every uh, every Sabbath. This is probably how he got uh, to know Eustace, the, uh, the God-fearer who lived next door uh, to the synagogue. Uh, but he goes from this reasoning or dialoguing in verse 4 to this solemn testimony. Uh, the word that is translated testified in verse 5 is one uh, that is much more urgent, much more earnest. Um, there is, oh, it's about 150 years uh, old now, but those of you young men uh, who are interested in the pastoral ministry may uh, want to read a book called An Earnest Ministry, The Great Want of Our Times. Um, uh, but... Uh, it is a great want uh, of our times. Uh, and here uh, Paul goes from the, uh, the reasoning, the dialoguing uh, that he was doing when there were gathered those who had uh, the Old Testament scriptures there uh, uh, the end of each week, uh, dialoguing with them in the synagogue. He goes from that uh, to this Solemn testimony uh, to the Jews uh, that Jesus uh, is the Christ. Uh, But up until that point, he had been in what we might call a normal believer routine. Uh, He uh, arrived in Corinth. He found uh, Aquila and Priscilla, uh, who together were tent makers, uh, husband and wife team. Uh, And apparently he did more than his ordinary uh, amount of tent making because his stay uh, in Corinth is described at that point in verse 3 as being of the same trade, staying with them and working for by occupation they were tent makers. And I say more than the ordinary amount uh, because in 2 Thessalonians 3.8 he reminds the Thessalonians that he had worked hard with his hands at least enough to pay for his own bread uh, so he had done that with uh, the Thessalonians. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4, he refers to what we assume is his ongoing uh, uh, habit here in Corinth, even after the church is planted and, uh, and going. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 12, uh, that he does the same. And uh, even when he moves on to Ephesus in his third missionary journey, apparently he's going to do the same because uh, when he takes his leave from the Ephesian elders, Uh, In Acts 20 and verse 34, he reminds them uh, that he had worked hard uh, in order to pay for his own bread. He 
Uh, he says in several places uh, that a preacher has a right to get his living from his preaching, uh, but Paul had not uh, claimed or taken that right. Uh, and yet what's happening in verse 3 uh, seems to be more than that. It seems to be the equivalent of uh, in John 21 when Peter uh, was in waiting mode, not just because between the resurrection and the ascension, uh, you can only gather with Christ when Christ happened to appear uh, to you. Uh, but even then, uh, the Lord Jesus, when he was about to ascend, told them that they had to wait in Jerusalem. And Peter, in waiting mo mode, just goes back to his old trade. You remember that at the beginning of John 21. He says, I'm going fishing. Uh, and the other guys who were also in waiting mode, a uh, bunch of them had been fishermen too. So they went fishing with him. Uh, and so there's, there, there's something here of his going into a normal believer routine. Uh, and certainly it changes what Aquila and Priscilla, <coughs> what their life is like. Uh, they probably uh, go into a normal believer routine as well. Uh, for them, it was a step up in zeal uh, and, uh, and service to the Lord. Uh, for Paul, it was a step back. Uh, but the, the sense seems to be that you know, six days a week, they were uh, plying their tent-making trade. One day a week, they went to uh, synagogue. Um, uh, and, uh, and Paul, uh, who has not yet planted the, the church in Corinth uh, at this point, is having a profound effect on them, uh, which we know that he has, uh, because he's going to leave them in Ephesus uh, and you know, go up to Jerusalem. And uh, while Paul is gone... Uh, they are going to run into Apollos, and before this chapter is over, Aquila and Priscilla, the tent makers, are going to be instructing Apollos uh, in the faith. Uh, and so uh, there is uh, perhaps uh, an incidental challenge for us, uh, even thus far uh, in, in the passage. Uh, we're talking about being Paul being stirred up to greater zeal and being sustained uh, in uh, in a ministry, uh, but even when he's in waiting mode, his normal believer routine is uh, probably one that puts many of ours to shame. Uh, what are uh, what do we do with whatever discretionary time we have? Uh, how what use do we make with the conversations that we have? And then when we um, uh, then when we have uh, opportunity uh, are we uh, are we taking that opportunity to dialogue with others uh, about the Lord Jesus uh, certainly uh, this uh, lodging of and joining together in the same trade with him uh, radically uh, changed Priscilla or Aquila and Priscilla's life uh, but Paul is in waiting mode until verse 5. And then there's this change uh, that uh, takes place in verse 5. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit. Uh, and so there's, uh, there's the question, how did uh, God move Paul from the mode of life that he was in in verse 4 uh, to this 
solemn testimony in verse 5, and then this persistent ministry that is going to take place in Corinth for a year and a half. Uh, And the great cause is God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit is the one who who applied pressure, squeezed, uh, is, uh, is the idea of the verb, constrained uh, Paul uh, to solemnly testify to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. So that's the great cause. Uh, and uh, if you and I are looking to be stirred up uh, in our spirits, stirred up to greater zeal, Uh, I'm afraid many of us don't do so in a believing way. We do acknowledge before God that we need greater zeal, uh, but there is that fleshly tendency to think that it will come by the force of our resolve. I will do better now, God, I promise. Uh, When it comes by the almighty power of His Holy Spirit. After all, you and I, Uh, cannot make our spirits desire anything more uh, than they do. Uh, We are able uh, and have a duty to meditate upon and foster what what the Lord gives us, and even that comes in dependence upon His grace. But it is God the Holy Spirit who stirs Him up. And it is helpful to notice the arrival that was at least the context or the occasion for the Holy Spirit doing so, and probably instrumental. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, here were, here were his brother ministers, the ones who had been run out of Thessalonica with him, and Philippi with him, and Berea with him. Uh, and they had continued the ministry in Macedonia. Uh, and their arrival would be used by God to remind him of what they uh, were all to be about. The commissioning that they had received from their sending church in Antioch. The purpose of the journey that they were on. And even more than that, the call that they had from God, the Holy Spirit. In a couple of chapters' time, at the end uh, of his third missionary journey, when Paul seeks to be used of God uh, for uh, the uh, the arousing of the spirits of the Ephesian elders uh, to the ministry that they must now continue without him in Ephesus, he reminds them to to take heed to themselves and to the flock of God among whom the Holy Spirit has made them overseers and whom God has purchased with his own blood. Acts 20 and verse 28. And this is something that he would be reminded of when Silas and Timothy arrive from Macedonia. This is something that you and I remind one another of when we don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together on the Lord's day. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Because the only way that you and I are able to gather on earth with an assembly that joins the assembly of the firstborn in heaven is through that new and living way that is the flesh of Jesus Christ. The only reason, the only way that you and I can come boldly to the Holy of Holies is because 
the, the pure water or the water that has been set aside for that purpose to, to wash us clean has not so much had an effect upon our bodies as it reminds us that our consciences are cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we gather together, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves uh, with one another. And we come to the living God through Jesus Christ, knowing that he who sits in heaven as our anchor and our forerunner has poured out from there his Holy Spirit who applies him to us. And so, yes, there's this glorious vertical dimension in the public worship of God, but then there's that horizontal dimension, isn't there? That the not forsaking of ourselves, not forsaking of the assembling of ourselves together in, in verse 25 of Hebrews 10 uh, is combined with, is a means by which we stir one another up to love and good works. You see, Christians continue to need stirring up and sustaining. We need zeal and we need endurance. And yes, it comes from God. But one of the instruments by which it comes from God is through what he does in our brothers. How he uses them in our lives. How he uses us in their lives. And so there's probably something more than a time stamp at the beginning of verse 5. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was squeezed by the Holy Spirit, pressured, and solemnly testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. When you think about and prepare for the assembly of the Lord's Day, are you seeking not only that God would affect you through the means of grace, but that he would also affect you through your brothers and that he would affect them through you because this is how he has ordained to do it. You see, the Holy Spirit does, uh, is pleased to operate by use of the word because that's what he has appointed to do. It does no good to, to say, oh, I want to be in the spirit and think that somehow by some... You know, uh, uh, frenzy of feelings that the provoking or the pressuring of the Holy Spirit comes. He is the Spirit of Christ. He's applying Jesus to you. And he does it, yes, by word and sacrament and prayer, but especially word, sacrament, and prayer in the fellowship of the saints. And so we seek to stir others up by our holy conduct in the assembling and in the means that he's given us <coughs> for that assembling on the Lord's day. And then yes, also, whatever tent making we do the other six days, would we not seek from God to, uh, to have on one another a similar effect uh, as Paul had on Aquila and Priscilla? Our time is limited. We are not God who have decreed everything that will happen in all of history and who is not slow as some call slowness, but 
patiently, perfectly executing his plan day by day. You and I, we have a limited number of days, and we don't even know what the number is. And the amount of time spent in things that will not, uh, will not be worthwhile in the last day is enough. Let us spend the days that we have left stirring one another up, and especially the Lord's days that we have left, stirring one another up and being stirred up, seeking that God the Spirit would be the one who squeezes our spirits, who pressures us from the inside. Well, he does this especially by reinforcing his doctrine, reinforcing his theology. You notice what the Spirit compels him to do, to testify to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. He, uh, he was invited at the Areopagus to give an account for what he believes. Uh, you remember the people there at the Areopagus in Athens who did nothing uh, but tell and hear something new uh, all day, every day. And they said, all right, lay it on us. Add your religion to our repertoire. Um, but here, uh, it's not the, the people inviting him to give an account for what he believes. He is now to give his solemn witness. And his solemn witness is that Jesus is the Christ. And he's not just giving the name uh, of a man from Nazareth who was unjustly executed. He's identifying Jehovah for them. Because this was his experience. No one knew more about what the Old Testament said about Yahweh than Saul the Pharisee. It's almost certain that he had the entire Old Testament memorized. As many Pharisees did at the time, and he was the greatest of them all. He was the, the brightest shining star among them. Uh, and so the study of the Lord... Uh, the the one who, yes, is uh, the four letters of his name or a holy name. And we often will say, because it's his memorial name, when, when we're reading that trans, the, 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 one, the word that is Lord in all caps in our Old Testaments. And I don't like that the, the New King James does it also in the New Testament. Because in the New Testament, it's translated kurios. It's translated Lord. When Jesus... When Paul says, the Lord Jesus Christ, he is saying, Yahweh, Jesus Christ. And when he testifies to them uh, that Jesus is the Christ, he's saying, I thought I knew Yahweh better than anyone. And then one day I was on the, my, the way to Damascus, serving the Lord of the Old Testament, whom I thought I knew. And he finally gave me that great experience in which a light shone from heaven and I was knocked to the ground. Something that, that only a few men had ever had. And certainly the one who had made a life of studying the Old Testament knew who this was who was doing this. For there had been some theophanies in the scriptures that he had studied. And his great question was, Who are you, Lord? And the answer of the living God who had said to Moses at the bush, I am that I am, said to Paul on the road, I am 
Jesus. And so he gives his solemn testimony. He gives his witness. And he's an expert witness because he knows the Bible better than any of them. And he is an eyewitness because he has met the God of that Bible on the road to Damascus. And so it is especially this doctrine, the the first part of the theology that is reinforced when he, uh, when the Lord is stirring him up and has already applied this pressure uh, to his, uh, his spirit and he starts to give testimony is that Jesus is the Christ. And they oppose him that Jesus is the Christ. So they are saying the Christ has not come. The son of David, the anointed, has not come. The great high priest according to the order of Melchizedek that they sang and prayed about in Psalm 110, had not come. The prophet, like Moses, had not. They opposed that the Christ had come. But they do more than than oppose, don't they? But when they opposed him and blasphemed, you see, this is how the, the Jews, this is the hardest part for them about the gospel of Jesus Christ is because to them, God becoming a man sounds like blasphemy. But when they say Jesus is not God, they are guilty of blasphemy. And so God, the Spirit, reinforces for Paul first uh, that, um, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of David. He reinforces uh, for Paul second that Jesus is not just the son of David, but he's the son of God as the Holy Spirit declared with power when he raised Jesus from the dead. Romans chapter one combines these two things and this is Paul's great testimony. And when they start blaspheming God by saying that Jesus is not, they're blaspheming Jesus. If you say bad things about me, you're not blaspheming. It is maybe a little bit blaspheming because I'm made in the image of God. But if you say Jesus is not God, you are blaspheming. And it is specifically the divinity of Christ that makes them oppose this. We've seen this before. You remember in the first missionary journey, when he comes to Antioch in Pisidia in chapter 13, they too opposed and blasphemed. This is the great truth that the church is to believe and to teach, to be the pillar of and the buttress of First Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15. And what is the first part of that truth? First Timothy 3, verse 16. God himself is manifested in the flesh. Revealed in flesh. That's why the name Jesus. Jesus was not named Jesus because Yahweh was going to save through him. Jesus was named Jesus because he is Yahweh who saves. That's the point that Matthew makes in Matthew 1 verses 21 through 23. When the angel tells 
Joseph that he has to be named Jesus. He quotes from Isaiah and he says, this is to fulfill the prophecy about him that his name is Emmanuel, God with us. It wasn't a description of what he would do. It was an identity of who he is. And how provoked is he now? This apostle who is already compelled by the Spirit to give his testimony and the people to whom he is testifying blaspheme Jesus the Christ by saying that he is less than the living God. God himself in the flesh, 1 Timothy 3.16. God himself with us, Matthew 1.21-23. God himself who gave himself humanity, added to himself humanity so that he could purchase the church with his blood. Acts 20, verse 28, and the church purchased by the blood of God. God himself who raised himself from the dead. You remember a couple weeks ago in the midweek meeting sermon at the end of Romans 4. And we have believed on him who raised him from the dead. And who is the him? Well, in chapter 10, it would be God, probably implying the Father. In chapter 1, it had been the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 10, verses 17 through 18, Jesus says that it's he himself. Which is it? Who raised Jesus from the dead? Was it the Father or the Son or the Spirit? And the mathematical answer is yes. And the theological answer is God, who is Father and Son and Spirit. He is God himself who is in the flesh, God himself with us, God who purchased the church with his blood, God who raised himself from the dead, John 10, God who is the only appearance of God that you can ever see. So that if you have seen Jesus, you have so completely seen God that there can be no more appearance of the Father to view. And when Philip asks for it, he rebukes him. There's nothing more of God to see than there is in Jesus Christ. God himself, to the point that If you do not know him as God, then whatever else you are calling God is not. Jesus in John 7, 19 through 59, in that massive, persistent argument against the Pharisees who thought they knew God, but when Jesus claims to be God, want to stone him for blasphemy. No, they were committing the blasphemy. He is the one who created the cosmos, and this is the gospel. The one who made the heavens and the earth and everything in them. The one in whom we live and move and have our being. The one who gives life and breath to all and all things. He became flesh so that he could be the Christ. He gave himself blood so that he could spill it to purchase sinners. He laid down his life and he took it up again and he did not do it for the good. He did it for the wicked 
so that the faithful saying would be that Jesus Christ saves sinners of whom I am the chief. And this was the testimony of Paul. That even those who are blaspheming in front of him were doing no worse than he had done until that day on the road to Damascus. So that there isn't one of you in the hearing of this sermon who cannot be saved, who will not be saved if you believe that the God who made all of this and more importantly, the God who made you and your soul who is the father of you because you have an immortal soul for which there's no answer in the creation, but only in the creator. That precisely because you are denying him and because his wrath is being revealed against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress that truth and unrighteousness, precisely because of your sin, he took on flesh He took on blood. He was damned on the cross. And for the first and only time ever, damnation died. There is no it is finished in hell. But there was on the cross. This was the solemn testimony. And this is the gospel. How wonderful Paul knew how dreadful their blasphemy was. That brings us to the next part of his doctrine that was being reinforced. Not just that Jesus is the Christ. Not just that Jesus is God. But the eternal and ultimate stakes that are involved. And you hear that in his response. When they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. People are perishing for the lack of the knowledge of the living God. And since God has revealed himself as Jesus Christ, they are perishing especially for the lack of knowledge of and faith in Jesus Christ. This is what is at stake. Who can be friendly and casual rather than friendly and urgent? and persuading, and solemn, and pleading. When your child is choosing the color purple to color in the circle, when it says at the top of the page, color in the circle's orange, you're not urgent and pleading, although depending on how many times you've reprinted the page, it gets more urgent, doesn't it, Mom? But when you're talking to your child about having an eternal soul that came from the living God and that this God has become a man to live righteously and die atoningly and rise again with power, you are urgent and pleading. Or at least you know before his word as it is preached that you ought to be. And so he continues, your blood be upon your own heads. For those of us who are parents with our children or elders in the church, 
uh, as the apostle is going to say to the Ephesian elders in a similar vein in, in chapter 20 when he's taking his leave and he says, I am innocent of the blood of all of you. There is blood, and it's not blood meaning they're going to die and leave this world one day. He's talking about the second death. He's talking about the eternal death. He's talking about the perishing of a soul. When the restraint of God's fury and the restraint even of their sin is removed. And so at one and the same time, they come into the full expression of the rejection of him that his hand had restrained for so long while they lived in this world. And in the moment that they come into the full expression of the rejection of him, they come into the full experience of the glory of him. This is hell. Hell is not the absence of God. It's the full presence of my resistance to him with the full presence of his glory against that resistance. That's what 1 Thessalonians says. Jesus is going to appear. And those who do not know God or obey the gospel, so whether they have merely suppressed the truth and unrighteousness from general revelation, or they have heard that Jesus is God who died for sinners and they have rejected him, those will suffer eternal destruction from his presence and from his glory. And don't let anyone mistranslate the word away into that verse for you. Your blood, he says, be upon your own heads. I am clean. This is how God stirs up his servant. Gives him zeal. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the God. There are eternal souls at stake. These are the stakes for you if you don't believe in him. These are the stakes for your neighbors who are perishing without Christ. And so we rack our brains and we say, have, have I done all that I can do to get them under the preaching of Christ? For that hearing, that, that faith that comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ for which the Lord has especially sent preachers. In my prayers for them, am I not just pleading for their surgery that's coming up, but for their soul that is at stake? And then that binding obligation of his ministerial call, your blood be upon your own heads, I am clean. Like you would like he said in the serial reading to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, not too long ago in this room, do not neglect the gift that is upon you by prophecy and by the laying on of hands. What was prophecy? A word that comes not from man, but from God. There is a sense in which this is prophecy. Insofar as the man before you sticks to the text of Scripture, you ignore it not at the peril of ignoring the words of a man, but at the peril of ignoring the word of God. And he told Timothy, look, you don't get to choose whether or not you fulfill your ministry. God called you to that ministry by prophecy. God called you to that ministry by the laying on of hands. This is true for you who are parents. You have a binding obligation to your ministerial call. 
you are not to give them the discipline and instruction of your home. You are to give them the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It belongs to the Lord. It's not yours to withhold. And if you don't, and they die in their sins, you will be held accountable like the watchman, Ezekiel. Son of man, prophesy. If you fail to warn them and they perish, I will require their blood at your hands. But if you warn them and they don't repent, they will die for their lack of repentance. But your hands will be clean. That's what he's thinking about, isn't it? When he says, I am clean. The binding obligation. That's what he wrote to the Romans. He said, I'm under a debt. You can't not receive me because I can't not come to you because I much preach, must preach the gospel to you. The covenantal progression and expansion of the gospel age. Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. This is something that uh, happens, generally speaking, in the history of God's dealing with man. The, the salvation of the Gentiles wasn't plan B. It was the next step in plan A. He, even in his summary of the gospel, when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. How does that verse finish? First for the Jew, then for the Greek. This was what God was intending to... He told Abraham, in the very call to Abraham, that this was the point of calling Abraham was that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. And so he, he's, he's, not, he's not pressured by discouragement. He's prompted to the next step. First for the Jew. He's told the Jew. The Jew re rejects it. What does he do now? He goes to the Greek. And when he goes on to Ephesus, he's going to do the same thing. He's going to go to the Jew first. Why? Because that's what God does. This is something that God has called him to. God's salvation is not a theoretical concept. It's an historical act. Paul is smack dab in the middle of that history. And you and I are smack dab in the middle of that history too. We look around at our church. We see an ongoing fulfillment of a plan that goes back into eternity in the decree of God. He has those who are his, those whom he's going to save, those whom he's going to save in a particular way. He's told us about it in his word. We follow the book. That's what Paul was doing. This was not a, an apostolic temper tantrum. This apostle is the same one who continues to say, I wish that I could be accursed for their sake. This is one, this was Paul who says, because he believes that God is going to gather Jews back in by provoking them to jealousy with Gentiles, he magnified his ministry to the Gentiles. Because what God had said was he would use that to bring Jews to Christ. It's all theological, isn't it? But when we say theological, we don't mean abstract. Theology is the most concrete thing there is. 
Because all existence comes from God who has existence in himself. The rest of us just have a, a second-rate derivative, derivative form of existence. And so this covenantal progression and expansion of the gospel aid, desiring to participate in the work that God is doing, which we've already said in this sermon, is one of the reasons we're assembled here today. Because part of the work that God is doing is the sanctifying of believers, is the producing in them the holiness without which they won't see the Lord. You see, it's not just the discipline of God as a good father in Hebrews 12 that he uses to produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness and the holiness without which we, we won't see the Lord. Hadn't he just said about a chapter and a half earlier in the book of Hebrews that we stir one another up to love and good works? Aren't we right now in the hearing of his word preached together, participating in something that God planned from eternity in order to bring many sons to glory. Our theology should drive us to worship and admonish one another with the scriptures in song and call upon God together from the scriptures in prayer and listen to God's word preached as we make our vows and have our hearts exposed, flayed open by the living, active word of God and are sanctified by his truth, his word is truth. And we're all participating in this covenantal expansion and progression, which is just a way of saying we're all participating in God's plan to save the way he had decided to from before the world began. Just like even our Lord, knowing that his part was to die on the cross, set his face toward Jerusalem. Even if that meant that there were people who would no longer accommodate him. And then there's the fact of God's sovereign providence. It goes right along with it. It's delicious. He, uh, he renounces them in the synagogue, gives us the last part of his testimony that their blood is upon their own heads. He departs from there. He enters the house of a certain man named Eustace, one uh, who's a God-fearer we've Heard in several sermons what that is. We won't take the time now. Whose house is next door to the synagogue. So he goes next door. And what happens? Not just anybody from the synagogue. The ruler of the synagogue. Who has heard the solemn testimony. Who has opposed that Jesus is the Christ. Who has blasphemed against Jesus being God. He hears this, your blood is upon your own heads. He hears this from the Jews to the Gentiles. He sees the apostle go next door to a Gentile. And God immediately does what Paul is talking about in Romans 11. When, when he says, I magnify my ministry because God will use it to provoke. He had seen it before. He had seen it in Corinth. He had seen it next door. And the ruler of the synagogue comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Isn't it a glorious providence? Doesn't this, in God's wonderful wisdom, isn't it 
much more impactful sometimes, the way he times what he does. Yes, it would have been wonderful if the ruler of the synagogue got converted when he first preached the sermon, when he first gave the testimony. But in God's providence, he chooses the timing of going next door to Eustace's house to be the moment at which he converts Crispus. And Crispus, no longer ruler of the synagogue, is, it? is he? Because it's going to be Sosthenes in a few weeks or months or whenever that part of the passage happens. The fact of God's providence. I think we'll have to stop there because the providence really takes into account uh, in order to consider God's providence further. We really want to spend some time on what God says when he says, no one will attack you to hurt you. That God rules and overrules what other people do. Just as Joseph said in Genesis 50, verse 20, just as um, if you get a chance, you can read the article that was sent with the letter yesterday. But the presence of the Lord with his servant, the providence of God, uh, over uh, the sovereign rule of God and his providence over everything that happens from others. The purpose of God in that providence, for I have many people in this city. Uh, and then uh, the experience in uh, the incident before Gallio, uh, all of those things we will want to, uh, to spend time on when there's more of us left to give to hearing but here are the first two great ways that God stirred up his servant to zeal and would go on to sustain him. We're not there for a year and a half yet, but uh, Lord helping us, we'll get there next week. Here are the two great ways. The Holy Spirit pressured his spirit. It was personal. And he reinforced his theology, his doctrine. It was theological do you look for zeal? Do you know you ought to have more? Are you perhaps weary in what God has called you to do? But here are two great ways God gives it to his servants. He stirs up their spirits and he reinforces their theology. It's personal and it's theological. Let us seek for it to be so from him for, our, for ourselves. Let's pray. Oh, we praise you, Lord Jesus, who have been received up into glory and who, having appeared to those who would first preach your gospel, caused yourself to be preached on among the nations, preached in the nations and believed upon in the world. Give us, O oh God, who have heard you preached. Give us, Lord Jesus, to believe upon you who not only died for our sins and the authority that you had to lay your life down, but who rose again on account of our justification. Grant that by your Spirit whom you poured out, that we would know that you have authority in heaven and on earth. 
that we would know that you are the one who makes us your disciples. Grant to us to keep all that you have commanded. Stir zeal up in us. O Lord, let each of us be an encouragement, an instrument of the provoking of our brothers. Don't let us be those who slouch back together into normal mode. But stir us up to love and good works that we might walk in them which you prepared beforehand since you are going to make us new creatures and we are your workmanship in Christ Jesus. So glorify yourself and the Son and glorify the Son in his church and glorify this church by the deeds in which you make us to walk. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.